Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. I welcome to the podcast, Kurt Johnson. Kurt is the co-founder and managing partner of an innovative venture builder studio called 11.2 Ventures. It's really an interesting concept. Kurt and company are taking the VC and startup space to another level. They create and build companies in-house rather than paying a premium to third-party ventures. Essentially, they're a turnkey business builder, starting at the ideation phase and building the product and infrastructure internally. It's really quite interesting. In addition to the insights on their model, Kurt and I also chat about transitions in B2B sales methods since 2012, weighing the leverage of marketing opportunities, be thinking about businesses as ecosystems, approaching of selling into an ecosystem, the B2B market is a platform, and a number of other topics around growing your, your B2B startup. So at the end of this, you'll see, is this the future of venture capital? Yeah, you'll have to listen to the episode and decide for yourself. Enjoy, and now on to the interview. Hey, good morning, Kurt. Welcome to the podcast. Morning, Brett. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for uh, having me here. Happy Tuesday as you. One of the last, hopefully not one of the last nice fall days that we have, but it's good to have you on the program. Thank you. Hey, to get us started, why don't you give the audience a little bit, when did you first get involved and how did you get involved with, with B2B startups? Sure. You know, my whole career has been in business to business sales and serving the business community. I officially started in B2B startups in 2012, which is when I left corporate America to venture out on my own. And the rest is history, as they say, right? <laughs> history in the making, hopefully. Yeah, there you go, I like it. <laughs> which is good. So why don't you, you tell the audience a little bit about what you're, you're working on today, because I think it's super fascinating. It'd be a great way to kind of kick off this discussion. Sure, sure. From a very high level, I have a venture builder studio called 11.2 Ventures, which 11.2 is the kilometers per second needed to get into orbit from sea level in eight minutes. I've been told that you can do it more slowly, but we'll, we'll take eight minutes for 11.2. And one of the companies that's in the 11.2 Ventures portfolio is called Proceed, which is all business to business sales. It's really just the culmination of what I've observed in the market as a sales, as a guy carrying a bag, as well as as a manager giving out quotas and trying to trying to hit the organizational numbers. Yeah, I mean that's good. A couple of ways we can go with this, but first, me because we kind of had that shared background of B two B sales. Just curious from your perspective, you know, two thousand twelve is almost an eternity ago in the B two B space, so. Interesting, your perspective on kind of what's changed, probably even the most recent, right? Where you used to be more outbound driven, right? And driving yeah. the sales process. Now, hopefully it's more reactionary. I'd love to just get your perspective on, yeah, it's almost a decade, which is hard to believe. And kind of the current state and how that's kind of transitioned recently. I guess way back when, in 2012, salespeople did a lot of education. And I think there's three things that really have, have changed. One is that marketing automation took or co-opted or took over a lot of that education role for a salesperson. And so salespeople then evolved into you know, the back end of what was arguably a longer, a longer series of 
activities in a sales process, very much focused on closing now deals and getting you know active leads from marketing. I think the second thing is, you know, I had you know cut my teeth in the Chicago market, and there were a lot of buildings in Chicago that I was escorted out of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you know, knocking on doors just isn't the way anymore to be effective as you're trying to win new customers. It really everything has to have some tie into digital marketing, into drip campaigns, into nurturing personal lead list, not just an organizational lead list. And then I think the third thing, which really is, you know, 2020 starting in February, is that there's almost no more knocking on doors, right? We have now had on some levels options taken away from us. We have to now build relationships, sure, in person, but we also have to be able to build a digital relationship at a company level as well as at individual level. Yeah, no, I think it, it makes sense. And, you know, one of the things we talked about flying a little bit was, you know, I think B2B was moving that way, right? Slowly, some industries faster than others. Some were saying, we've always done it this way. It'll still work this way. Pandemic's trying to change that. It kind of shut the door on the way we used to do it. And there's still, to your point, a whole area of the, the personal relationship and development. But the ability to connect is going to have to be done digitally. And I really like what you talked about the education, right? Because a lot of that is done online and prospects want to do the research on their own and don't have to talk to a, you know, a person, even though they might enjoy the conversation, at least initially they want to do their, their own research before, before connecting with you. Right. Well, that's a great point, Brett, because more than ever customers are better educated by the time the salesperson gets to them. And so really getting to that value proposition immediately, getting to how I or my services are going to impact your life, your company, your performance. That is the cut to the chase now with a, with a better educated customer base, right? Back to that first point, salespeople are educating still, but it's around the value in the context of what the customer already knows. So the conversations, the salespeople have to up their game as well and really do their homework on, on what the problem is that they're trying to solve for because there are competitors out there. Yeah, no, you're right. I had a, an author and she's consulted Diane Helbig. Her episode will go out here in a couple of weeks, but she wrote a book on sales or modern day selling, if you will. And you know, one of the things that I like that she, her distinction was marketing is really about creating the awareness but sales is now about the discovery, right? Is it actually a right fit for our product? Will they be successful if they use it? Which I know we've used discovery for a while, but that almost becomes more of a discovery and then help them get across the finish line where to your point, it used to be the full process, education, you know, the salesmanship of it and all that good stuff. So I like to joke sales has finally caught up with me because I'm not that hardcore outbound, push, push, used car salesman, buy now, you know, time's running out and it is really about the value and help and subject matter experts, problem solving, et cetera. Right? Mm -hmm. So awesome. And why this ties back into where I love to go with, with the podcast is, you know, we look at B2B founders in the early stages, they're doing, if not all this in the majority of selling. And as they start to bring resources on to help with the sales process, I think it's really important to help educate them on, 
maybe there's not one way to go to market or help do that, but understanding the landscape, again, not starting from zero, which I know is where all our startup come, maybe a good transition into that piece of it. And I do want to circle back to 11.2 and why you started that. But I know when we talked a little bit about, you know, you said all startups start at zero. And so how do we help facilitate that growth process and take some of the the friction out and, and accelerate it. So, which I perfect tying back to 11.2 and, you know, exit velocity and, and all that good stuff. So that was a long winded wind up to ask you that question, but <laughs> no, that's great. It's good con- context. So as a founder, I am completely stoked about my idea. I love the concept that I have. And yet if I haven't contemplated distant distribution, then I'm starting at a deficit, right? And so I think one of the areas for founders is really to understand exactly how are they going to get that product out into, into their prospect's hands and what is that use case that's going to tip the scales to a conversion, to a sale, right? Distribution is so often overlooked because the product is sexy, the product is cool. People have poured their heart and soul into this thing and then you have it, it's like, oh, well now what do I do with it? Right. <laughs> Who do I talk to? How do I get it out there? And so that lends itself, you know, when we think about marketing, there's the broad message and the value, there's the digital presence, but then there are the influencers and then there are the allies. And how does that starter, that, that startup founder start to look at not just that, that straight obvious line of, well, what is my, what is my digital presence? presence? What is my digital presence and how do I activate that? But who are the people who can actually, who are the one-to-many relationships that I can start to nurture and cultivate? Are they universities? Are they bloggers? Are they companies? Are they, you know, corollary product offers that you can joint, do joint webinars with, right? Like those non-obvious kind of guerrilla views of bootstrapping your way out into the market for the launch are all really critical to to getting out there and making those first sales yeah i think that that's such a good point and yeah i'm going to admit that you know when i started the podcast a couple of years ago i was pretty we all set kind of on our ideas right in approaches and you know definitely understood the value of the, the founder getting the product out getting the traction you know, proof of concept, but then when you try to start to expand it, it was really more the digital. How do I reach people I'm, I can't get to today? Or if I bring in salespeople, you know, that's still hand-to-hand combat. I'm not going to scale unless I bring in a hundred salespeople and reach it. And one of the areas that almost every founder that I've interviewed had talked about was getting to scalable growth was once they broke beyond their network, they, they stumbled, they struggled, some made it, some didn't. Right? And if they couldn't reach those new audiences, then they either burned out or ran out of cash and, and didn't necessarily make it. So one of the areas that I'm seeing a lot of traction, I think you kind of just talked about with the influencers and allies, is leveraging partnerships and different mm-hmm. channels that, you know, I think there was a time that was a heyday of those, but then I, for whatever reason, it seems to be either the founders or CEOs of companies now wanted to be much more direct and control that process where I'm seeing a lot of really good traction with some unique opportunities through different ideas of distribution. So I'd love to get your perspective on, 
you know, kind of where that's at today and how should they be thinking about leveraging those types of opportunities? Sure. You know, with software, specifically in business sales, you have this concept of, of incremental cost. If I build it once, technically, unless I have a lot of back-end human support behind it, that software costs the same thing. It costs zero for every new customer. And adds that zero cost, and I'm simplifying it, but that zero cost for the new customers is an opportunity to create partners. And look, there's no dot words in this B2B.com space. Everyone wants to improve their bottom line. They want something, right? And that, that incremental cost is, we could argue, a marketing budget that you can use to create and pay and form, form aligned partnerships with other companies or people and unite them around mutual success, right? That concept of alignment, I think, is often overlooked or, you know, or, or trivialized, right? right? We have parallel products. Wow, you know what we should do? We should try a webinar together. Well, okay, that kind of makes sense, but am I really excited about that or am I just looking at it from a joint interest perspective? Crazy thought, what if we split the profits from the deals that were tagged in that webinar? I don't know. The point is with software, you know, we were as founders creative enough to come up with that you know, groundbreaking concept. Why are we not being creative when we go to market? Why are we not being creative with how we structure these deals with our partners, our allies, our, our close connections that can be those one-to-many relationships? Because they're everywhere. It's just a matter of catalyzing them. Right. Now, I think it's such a really big opportunity in the world of fewer and fewer large companies and many more small companies or solopreneurs or small businesses. It's almost becoming more of an ecosystem than it is a... Mm-hmm what the traditional channel or a value-added reseller would be. And even with my own business, I'm starting to explore some of those different opportunities where we've got shared objectives or alignment with what we're doing, where in the non-traditional sense, you wouldn't think of us as, you know, potential partners. So mm-hmm. no, I think it's a, it's a really good idea. And, you know, it's probably a whole another podcast and episode we could do on, on that piece of it. But, you know, I think it's definitely something the founders need to look at seriously. And to your early point, do it sooner rather than later, basically have a plan, right? Yeah. And, you know, you you touched on a really important word, ecosystem. I think there's two ecosystems. One is inside the company itself or inside the, the customer itself. So that customer is, is taking a call or having a conversation about a founder's product for some reason, well, what is that reason? Traditionally, we would say, oh, here's a pain point. But that someone in that work process before that customer inside that company created a demand. They want a better procurement software. They want something, right? And then once that customer buys it, once that user is actually in the system and using it or consuming it or doing what you know, they're supposed to do with it, there's a downstream result as well. That's that internal ecosystem of the prospect. And to just sell based on one dimensional value where I say, hey, look, I've got this really good thing. It'll do these great things for you. You should buy it. That's, that's great. And that's a table stake. You have to do that. Right. But to be able to say, hey, I know you're in this situation because your CFO has these demands. This is a day in your life and this is a day in 
her life as the CFO. And I know once you're done with this, you're going to give it to product marketing or sales, and they're going to need it to be bundled up this particular way. And the procurement is going to help you do both of those things, right? You're upstream and you're downstream ecosystem. Ultimately, as we think about the way we get our distribution out there through those partners, that external ecosystem around who are the key vendors or suppliers to that particular customer. How do we partner with them to get an in? What do we do, again, with this concept? It's not just, you know, kind of side by side or, or closely aligned brands. It's also, hey, wait, that particular prospect is also working with these other providers that are out there that have nothing to do with what I'm doing. We're not competing. Let's have a conversation. Maybe we can start a non-competitive lead gen group to be able to walk each other into our various prospects, right? That's that bootstrapping mentality around getting it out there and, and getting outside of the founder circle. Yeah, and I think that's such such great advice. And you know, one of the things transitioning from enterprise back to the the startup space a couple of years ago was, you know, they are so set in their ways. They're so siloed. They only know one way of doing business. You may have some folks inside that are really trying to push and do things differently, but just processes everything makes it really difficult. That's why I think there is such a the golden era of B two B is right now to. Right. It'll disrupt the the industry and just the way you're talking about. And I think of it as an ecosystem and how do we do it differently and ask the dumb questions, right? I know we've right. never done this or it's not typical, but can we do this? Try right. it, test it, right? So, no, I love that. And then if we look at transitioning back, or not, I just want to tie off on the one thing with the, the ecosystem, we talk about the multiple buyers. I always like to reinforce this with, with founders who may not be used to selling, right? Just within that, that prospect world, you could have, you know, a buyer, a user, and the approver, right? As you said, CFO, mm -hmm. risk mitigation is their number one priority or how does it fit? And it's really not about crafting three different messages. It's creating the overall right message or approach to that's going to address each of their needs, but you can't really have three different discussions, right? It can't be because then you're creating the same silos prior. I'm just curious your perspective on kind of that approach in selling into an ecosystem. Well, I, I think there's the practical piece and then there's the practitioner piece. So the, the practical piece is it's important to understand. And I, I hope the beeping's not getting in the way outside. It's no, important to understand um, that the message itself has to exist without the salesperson. Because whatever I send to you, whatever I email to you, whatever words that I've used, even if it's a demo, frankly, unless you're the owner of the company or operating the BU or have that purchasing authority, you're going to have to talk to someone else about it. And to make sure that I'm arming you with the ability to go sell when I'm not there is really, you know, I would, I would say ecosystem awareness, right? This idea that, you know, you may be the champion for this particular product, but I need to make sure that you're armed so that when you do actually get in front of those people, because even though they're inside of your business, they're still busy, right? Getting on their calendar is a chore or, not very available. So that's the first thing is really understanding, you know, that that kind of, you know, ecosystem 
where your, I guess another way of saying it, your precedents and your dependencies are, who's going to be the, the job review, <laughs> the right. end user of, you know, Kurt did a good job. And so understanding that in, in my sales pitch is really important. I think the other thing is when we think about the ecosystem, the other piece is line items. If I only compete on one dimension, mm. then, you know, frankly, I'm missing an opportunity to, to crush a deal, right? I don't want to be 51% over the line. I want to be 100% over the line. And so when we think about competing from a multidimensional perspective, there's the price, there's the product itself, there's the contract, like thinking about the contract as a product, and then there's the support. And to make sure that my proposal or my value proposition addresses each of those four areas is another good way of getting in front of that ecosystem so that you have these four dimensions and then you can say, oh, I've looked at Kurt's offer and he's talked about all four, but you know, Alternate Co. has talked about only two, price and features. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. And I think it's it's over, it's often overlooked, right? Because if you can sell them on one piece, but there's the three other dimensions, you know, you're creating, putting friction in the process that you don't have to put in. So if you think about it up front and sell it as the package, it just makes so much more sense. And it's such good advice, especially if you haven't been in the sales world for a long time. And again, I think founders can make up for some of this just on enthusiasm and their excitement right. for the product and be able to work through it. But as you start to look to scale the business, which is almost what everybody wants to do, these are going to be become the more and more the, the factors, white the win-loss factors or the success or failure in some cases, right? If you can't solve or think like this, it's going to be really hard to grow your business. So... Yep. Yeah, without a doubt. Awesome, awesome. All right, so I do want to go back to 11.2, and I keep wanting to call it 11.2, so correct me if I'm wrong if I do it. Why did you start it? I mean, I, I have a good sense just based on our conversation of you know being able to grow startup businesses, but can you walk us back a little bit through you know kind of the genesis of the idea for this and kind of the problem that you mm -hmm. were looking to solve? Because I think it ties in nicely with you know, founders that are looking to grow their businesses. So without giving away the punchline, I'd love to have you dig into this a little bit. Sure, absolutely. You know, I've started a couple, a handful of businesses. And one of the things that I realized is that at least from a venture perspective, there's an opportunity to create a factory around starting businesses. You know, one of the mythologies around venture is that, you know, that founder has to be in it all the way for their first company or for that particular company. If they're doing something else, then maybe they're not that good of a founder. The reality is everyone's got a side hustle. Everyone's doing multiple things. Even you know some of the bigger names out there have four or five companies that they're the CEO of. And as I started to walk through you know, the different portfolio companies that I was building myself, I realized, holy cow, you know, I have an ability to aggregate these four under one umbrella and then raise capital and, and give investors a almost a diversified view of four companies that was early on in the process. Now 11.2 is looking to build 50 companies. And out of those 50, we're looking at, you know, anywhere between 20 to 40 joint ventures. And so it's a much 
larger perspective on, on what it is. And what we're doing is, you know, if you think about the way a product works, right? You have a product, but then you get another product. And then pretty soon those products, they aggregate into almost a concentration of services. But right. that, you can either say, well, that's the definition of my company, or you can say that's platform. And that platform can be reapplied to other areas. And so what 11.2 is, is doing is it's taking this concept of a, of a corporate development shop and said, you know what, we're going to be a venture builder studio. And so we're going to build these particular companies. We've got a platform. We're going to only build companies that make sense around building a platform so we can take it, you know, and sell it to a whole different industry. We've got one company called Perceive, which is business model simulation, right? It gives executive certainty around how they're going to grow based on their investment in staffing, their investment in marketing resources, their sales process. And it basically says, Hey, look, this is the certainty. If you do it this way, you can actually hit these particular numbers. Well, if you think about the sales process as a supply chain and a manufacturing process where each stage in that sales process is that requires different, different resources, I need a systems engineer, I need a manager, I need legal at the back end of the process, right? That's a factory floor. And when we talk about perceived from a B2B perspective, it is helping on you know, that, how do I grow and what do I do? But it's supply chain. And so when we think about it as a throughput model, here we've built this one thing, which is B2B sales, and we can apply it over here into these other categories. We can look at, you know, inventory throughput, we can look at process improvement, right? Any of those different dimensions, it doesn't have to be revenue, it doesn't have to be marketing expenses. You just plug your own numbers in there based on what, what sort of throughput you're actually trying to model. And that's what I mean with 11.2, we're building around these platforms that can be repurposed into other sectors. Because back to that marginal cost, if you build it once, once you've built it, the incremental expense to sell it again or cut and paste and sell it again is only whatever is bespoke for that particular industry. Yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated by this because I, I agree. I mean, it started a few years ago and I thought, man, why is B2B sales the last of the wild, wild west, right? Your, your approach, your methodology changes every time you bring in a new sales leader, right? He or she's got right. a way of doing business. But the fact is, I think that entire go to market is, a platform, right? You may have different, you're going into different tactics within it, but you know, I've always kind of thought the same thing, you know, like we used to look at the old shared services, right? The back end, we can share and do this for multiple businesses because it's the same idea. But where I've kind of come around is right. A lot of these businesses don't make it. It's not an idea problem. It's an execution problem. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're not executing a hundred different ways. You may do certain things with different tactics, but the end of the day, the process, right, is still going to kind of be the same, kind of like what they used to do with manufacturing, then it was supply chain. So it just makes sense to me what you guys are, are focused on is on the go-to-market aspect of this, of why can't we replicate and repeat and drive the economies of scale, right? Have I got that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, profit and loss haven't really changed that much. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so we're back to distribution and we're back to ex execution. And under what conditions can I actually get my numbers? 
under what conditions, and can I even afford my numbers? Like these are really interesting questions, right? Yeah. This whole concept of in in sales uh, of try harder just really doesn't work. And no matter how much coffee or Red Bull is handed out to the team, unless you actually change the process or change one of the inputs, the results are are more than likely if you if you back out luck, going to be the same. Right. No, so true. And I'm curious from your perspective on, I guess, two pieces of that. One is, you know, the ideation, right? A lot of these startups in the B2B space have started from somebody that's come from the B2B space, couldn't get their problem solved. So now they developed a problem, a product or solution to help solve that problem. So with your approach, where are the ideas coming from? I mean, I completely get it to build and execute, but where was the, the genesis of the the initial concept for the each of the, the businesses or products? Yeah, so we have a handful of three general areas. The first is our investors, our investors and our advisory board, right? These are people who are at minimally, minimally they're accredited investors. And so they have a certain, you know, financial profile that the SEC has, has dictated uh, that allows them to invest in alternate assets. Which essentially means that they're in-seat executives. They're, they're individuals who Darwinianly have grown up through organizations, created wealth, and have also stayed there in those particular positions. So the ideas that they generate come with product market fit already. The second is we've got a te- technology transfer group that looks at IP from some of the larger research universities. And so we think about how can we take this and license this and this, this IP and create a B2B solution? Is there a problem out there that's big enough you know, for this? And then the third is, you know, more recently, we started working with you know, government uh, organizations like NASA and, and NIH and, and things, you know, groups like that, where we're again looking at that tech transfer. And it's the, the business lead. We have five different segments that we're operating in. That business lead is the one who says, oh, yeah, you know, we need to cherry pick from that one and that one and that one and come together and, and pull those ideas out. And then once we get those ideas, we've got, again, back to that factory floor, we've got a manufacturing process for vetting those ideas, walking them through their evolution. Is it a good idea? You know, your, your phase one would be, the usual venture questions. Is it a good idea? Does anyone care? Are there enough customers? Do we have distribution? And then you move into prototyping. And if it survives that process, then you move into the next process until it graduates with an MVP. Our definition of an MVP is, frankly, a handful of customers and a first dollar of revenue. So we don't just want something that works. We want something that's someone. And then what's the exit strategy? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off again. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. So for these companies, get the idea, you grow them to a certain level and then spin them off or sell them into a corporate partner? What's, what's kind of the, the longer term vision for these companies? Yeah, you know, because 11.2 Ventures is not a fund, it's an operating company. You can almost think of these as fully owned subsidiaries. And what that means is we have control over how we exit. One of the concepts that I think I learned when I was in corporate America was that some of these products that are manufactured 
are, are just that, they're products, they're product line extensions. It's like, oh, look, I've got a new module in my software, whatever it is. But others grow so big that they turn into separate divisions. And that's where I think in venture, we have an opportunity, 11.2 has an opportunity, because on day one, we don't know if the entity that we created is a product or if it's a company. And if it's a product, we're not going to throw money at it. We're going to find a home for it. We're going to sell it. And because we've got 50 companies that we're building and then you know the JVs, we have almost a normal distribution. We have enough we have enough in our portfolio where we can be opportunistic about how we sell. And conversely, that entity that we've created looks like it's got scale and it can actually grow to be a company, then we'll hold on to it and we'll apply, we'll invest more scale revenue and take it to its next inflection point. And so what we have as 11.2 is this ability to really see and be opportunistic based on our overall portfolio as well as the attributes of that particular company. And there's no harm, no foul with a company just being a product. Right. There's nothing wrong with that, right? You can crush it in the market and be the most awesome product ever, but that doesn't mean it deserves more scale revenue or investment. That just means it, it's looking for a home, at least in our parlance. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it makes a, a ton of sense. And I had Shark Tank winner on the podcast a number of episodes ago. I wish I could remember offhand what number it was, but Martin Hill invented a product. He basically built, scaled this thing through, I think he had one part-time person helping him in his home office coordinate, but he outsourced manufacturing, he outsourced everything. And when I actually interviewed him for the podcast, he actually announced on the show that he was selling his company, right? Because he realized he was a designer and a visionary and a product guy and not a, he didn't want to run a big company. So he kind of, you know, subscribed to your philosophy that said, Hey, there's other people that'll do this much better than I do. That's what they want to do. I've already got a couple more ideas that I, I want to work with. So it makes sense. I'm just curious and more devil's advocate here, just because the number of people I talk to, because there's going to be some products or ideas, you know, that you think are going to solve a problem that may or may not. And maybe too quickly you say, no, this isn't going to work. Where if it was a traditional, what I would say, air quotes, traditional founder, right? They may pivot two or three times until they actually get to what that right solution is because they're passionate about it. Where if it's more of a, hey, we're, we're building this. I mean, are you... I guess with the scale you're looking at, it's not going to matter if a few of them get washed out because didn't have the passion to take it a little bit more further than maybe what the business said that you should have. I don't know if I'm doing a very good job of asking you the question, but do you, do you see where I'm going with that? Well, yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll come back to you with it in a couple different concepts. So bravery is the stupid stuff we do that works, <laughs> right? And yep. between passion and pivot, when it works, it's awesome. It's like, wow, that founder did a great job with her passion and her pivots along the way. And look, they just exited and that's great. But that outcome isn't predetermined, right? There's no guarantee around that. And so when we flip it into the negative, it's called founder bias, right? And that founder bias, otherwise, I love some of the classics and I, it's just, you know, you get your Captain Ahab on and you're going to get the whale until it kills you. Right. Right. It works until it doesn't, right? <laughs> it works until it doesn't, exactly. And so the problem is you never know. 
right? What we've done is essentially said, look, we're going to take founder bias off out of this picture. We're going to build these companies. And it's not that we're avoiding it. It's that on the one hand, we have a commitment to build great, great products and great companies. On the other hand, we also can look at it clinically and say, oh, well, the duration is this, the product fit is this, and the inflection point for growth is this. You know, it's probably a good time to, to, to find a home for it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it makes sense. And it just kind of curious because you hear those as a 10, you know, 10 year overnight success and those types of things. And I do think there's always going to be a place for, for those folks. But I think to where your, where your point was, you know, we can factor out a lot of that writing take some of the, I love the, the founder bias. It, it's so true. And you're, most of them are walking a fine line, right? How far do mm-hmm. I keep going? where it's, it's just never going to work. And we probably should have pulled the plug a long time ago. So probably for every one, I have no idea what the math or the science says, but for every one that pivots two or three times and perseveres and overcomes what most people said, what is that stop, you know, maybe 10 don't make it because they follow that, that same path. And what you're trying to do is just, Hey, flatten the curve on this. We know there's a real problem out there. We've got a solution for it and it's either going to be product driven or, you know, we're actually going to build a, a full company out of this to go attack that problem. Yeah, you know, and I think the other element to founder bias that is really a very personal yardstick or meter stick is what is my growth objective or exit objective? Do I want to be a unicorn? Well, that's a seven to 15 year project, right? Lots of issues along the way, right? Do I want to sell for 100 million, for 50 million, for 10 million, for 5 million, right? What is my walk away from this business? And I, I think it's okay to have those conversations with oneself as that founder to say, look, if everything goes to hell in a handbag, I'm not going to be a unicorn. I'm not going to be $50 million exit. I'll be a $3 million exit. I'll have to split that three ways with my partners. So I'll walk away with, you know, a gross million dollars. Is that bad? (laughs) 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 And and so to have those conversations and almost plan plan out while you're planning your distribution strategy, plan your exit strategy. What happens when we hit these break points and we get an offer? What about these break points? What about this, you know, these milestones? Like what happens? Because otherwise we're reacting and we're not Hindsight's 2020. So unless we've planned for some of the possibilities, that's the only way to go into the future eyes wide open, I think. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. And, you know, one of the stats I use all the time in this, this, this program when working with founders is, you know, the reality is that less than 5% of the startups will ever reach a million dollars in revenue and less than 1%, I think it's like 0.8% reach 10 million, right? So even trying to become a unicorn has got to be one tenth of 1%. And even if you do everything right, there's a lot of luck that's going to go with it to create that unicorn type product. So, you know, just the fact of getting them over the, the million and $10 million threshold would be, you know, should be considered a win. And, you know, again, some people just want the lifestyle business and we'll run it, you know, 800,000 with good margins, hundred percent all day, do that. Good for you. It's really when you want to think about building the company with, you know, employees and scale, then, you know, there's, you know, the process is going to be critical to getting to that point. Right. 
Yeah, without a doubt. And it's important to think through these things, at least have thought through them a little bit as well. Yeah. And just kind of curious, because we did have a general partner from a B2B VC fund, early stage seed, and they talked about who they invested, founders they work with. You know, is there an opportunity? Hey, I'm I'm a B2B founder. I think I've got a great idea, but I don't know if I necessarily want to go through everything that we kind of outlined. Will you work with or talk to founders? Is that where the JVs come in or is this really more an internally driven process? I'm just kind of curious from, from I think, because I think this is a really cool concept. I'm just curious to see, you know, where and how, if there are other founders that don't want to go through that, you know, 10 year overnight success and think they have something, is that something you're working with individuals or are you really driving it still through an internal process? Most of it is internal, although we do talk to founders. So, you know, it's arguably the reason most of it is internal is because we start these products. We start these companies at 100% equity and zero valuation. It's an idea. We own the whole idea, but it hasn't done anything. And then by the time it hits MVP, we have somewhere between 80 to 90% ownership in that company. Got it. Got it. Got it. It would make sense for the model. So, no, I mean, I think definitely the big, you know, the big takeaways for me or a lot of them is, and you reinforce some of what my, my belief was, it really is about execution and scale. And I think if you're a founder looking to grow your business and, you know, don't want to give away 90% equity, <laughs> right? There is a play, but this, I mean, you guys kind of have the playbook of, of how to, to grow and scale a business. And a lot of it isn't, doesn't have to be, you know, gut feel or one-off type of an approach have, and you've said this a couple of times, you know, have a plan, right? Have a plan early on. Think about distribution before, maybe not too deep after you sell a couple customers to get the MVP, but, but think about it early enough and how you're going to be able to get this product to market and, and scale it versus waiting until you get to that point. And, you know, I've seen the found it, that's a, that could be a 12 to 18 month window. If you wait to think about distribution until you, you're at the point where you need to think about distribution, right? Yeah. It's kind of like raising capital. Don't raise it when you need it. <laughs> right. And, and there's three C's that I kind of live by, customers, connections, and capital, which lends itself to, I think, the creation for those early stage founders of, a, of an active advisory board. Not a governance board, but an advisory board that's going to help them get customers, connections, and capital. Uh, and I apologize if there's background noise uh, here. So... Now that's the charm of this podcast. It's <laughs> real people having real conversations and... I've never actually heard the three C's before, so I'll use it and, of course, give you full credit for it when, whenever I reference it. But it make, that makes a ton of sense, right? Yeah, and, you know, there's another thing called board fade, which, I mean, these are just the frustrating things that I've gone through in the course of you know, getting into venture. You get all these people on day one who are like, Kurt, you got a great idea. And then three months later, there's not 10 people, there's six people. And then at 12 months later, there's three people and then they're gone. Right. And so finding a board that can get you those three C's and then using things like options or some sort of program that vests over a certain, over a three-year window usually is a great way of making sure that they stay engaged, that if they do leave for whatever reason, people's circumstances change. If they get married, they 
decide to move to a different country, whatever the reasons, right? The fact is three years is a long time. And so those people who stick with you for three years as a founder should be rewarded for that. And those yeah. people who fade, no harm, no foul, but can go do their own thing. But at least you haven't diluted your company on a three-year term. You've only diluted it for the time that they've actually been there, right? So really finding that advisory board for the customers, the connections, and the capital, and then making sure that you reward them However, you know, that reward needs to show up because you want to engage hearts and minds, but then also that you're, you're limiting your exposure. Yeah, no. And I like the idea of three It works with some companies where their vesting is four years and that's an eternity in <laughs> right the Yeah, right. Startup space. So I like the three year. Have you seen anybody do two years? Is three years kind of where you would recommend? You know, it, it's situational. Yeah. I mean, I've done a year because it was a very specific task that was, you know, Hey, let's go see if we can do this. And I need your help on doing this particular thing. But long-term, you know, where the company is going to be in three years is not where we need that skill set right now. So these are really tools and there's no, if we just follow the rules, then it's one size fits all, but that's not what it is. Right. Right. The the company on day one is going to need a whole different skill set than the company on day two right? In year three. And so I'm going to need to arguably swap out some of the advisory board members. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Not because they're bad, but because they're really good at that thing over here. And I need people who are really good at this thing over here. And so let's, let's figure out how do we do that in a way that really engages hearts and minds, right? Yeah, no, I love it. And I I think it's perfect sense. I've actually written about kind of the three stages of growth and the needs and what the founders need to be thinking about at each of those stages. And it it differs and who you want to partner with and have part of that conversation is going to dramatically differ based on where you're at. You can't get through the first stage, two and three aren't going to matter, (laughs) but you do need to be thinking about it from day one that, Hey, if we're getting close to this milestone, you know, it's deploy this versus, all right, let's have a conversation, start to think about who we want to do. It's like I I tell my daughters, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best, but if you don't have a plan, you know, forget it. So yeah. And and it begins to come together, right? If you have those conversations with your team or yourself about, well, what are my break points? When would I, if I hit this number, what would I accept? If I hit this number, what would I accept? I hit this number, what would I accept? Well, then that informs how you're structuring your advisory board and how you're compensating them or rewarding them for their help. It all begins to align around what is the purpose of growth? How are you going to grow? What is that you know, full or part-time or advisory team that needs to be assembled to hit that particular milestone? Yeah, so good, so good. Well, Kurt, I want to be respectful of your time and you've been very generous so far, but I do have two last questions for you that wrap this up. One is, you know, what's next for you in the call it Q4? We're still early in, in Q4 at this point. What, what are you guys focused on just still ramping up and driving venture? What's, where's your focus going to be here in the next few months? Yeah, we have, we have two more companies that we want to fire up this quarter, Computer Vision and, and Freight and econometric modeling. So we're, we're pretty excited about those. We've got a whole bunch of customers that we wanna bring on board with our portfolios. 
And then, you know, after these eight companies, we have 42 left in the next four years. <laughs> to that's get aggressive, the- man. That's, that's, <laughs> but, but like anything, though, right? Once you get the few through the process, then it just, everything just kind of accelerates. You work out kinks and continue to refine it. So, and we'll have to have you back on maybe in a year just to touch base to see where you're at in the process. I'd love to get a kind of status update and update the audience of of where it's going. Cause I think like I said, it's really, it's different. And I love the fact that it's different, but it's so logical. (laughs) Right. So yeah, I'll make sure we get you back on to do an update. And the last question I ask everybody is, you know, what is one thing that you would highly recommend and could be personal or professional? Well, I was going to come up with something like super smart. And I think what I've observed with my own behavior is just this connection to the world. And what that means is not, you know, meditation, although I would recommend that. I watched the sunrise this morning. I got out and I walked three miles when it was dark. And then when I came back, it was, it was sunny and, and, you know, just feeling the wind and the sun and, and watching the change in the sky. I mean, it was just like, it was such a reconnection because we live our lives so much in this digital space. How much does a company weigh? Like perceive it's digital, it's SaaS. Like, I don't know. I don't think it weighs anything, but the stuff out there weighs something, right? We can feel it. We can smell it. And that reconnection with the world is just a good thing to do in this COVID time. Yeah. Or any time to be honest with you, but you're right. It's especially in, in COVID time. No, I love that. And hundred percent agree. I actually thought about that's what I'm doing sometimes, but it is, it's just getting out, give yourself a chance to think, appreciate what's going on out there. And then mm-hmm. business isn't going anywhere. Right. So. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, anything else, Kurt, before we, we wrap this up that we didn't touch on today, I think we, we covered quite a bit of ground for sure. This is great. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be on the podcast and look forward to connecting again. That's awesome. And then one last thing we'll add it to the show notes. If people are interested in learning more and connecting with you, which I'm sure they will be, what's the best place to connect with you? Well, the 11.2 website is 11-2ventures.com. And I think I'm listed on there. Otherwise, it's just Kurt at 11-2ventures.com. Awesome. 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 We'll make sure we add that to the show notes. And Kurt, thank you again so much for joining us today. I'd like to bring some fresh perspectives and you've absolutely done that for us. Thank you very much. Happy Tuesday. Yeah, you too. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye.